0: Hello, welcome to you don't know MoJack. My name is Ryan. My
1: name's Brandt.
0: And this episode, we're discussing SST38 Overkill LA. Now, the uh, full-length LP, Triumph of the Will, and this is a interesting release to go through. And we've even got a guest, Brandt.
1: Yep, uh, Felice LaCoco from uh, the who played on this album is going to be joining us in a bit. So thanks to Felice for doing that.
0: Absolutely. Uh very cool interview with Felice in a moment. I feel like you and I have probably got a lot to get off our chest though about some new music lately. Um I'm just guessing. Do you uh do you have a spiel or two for me to start?
1: I've got six spiels. Whoa. We might have to limit our discussion on these if we're ever gonna get to this interview. We'll go quick. Okay. Uh let's see here. Uh did you check out Joe Carducci's new issue of his blog The New Vulgate
0: Yes, I read that
1: It's pretty cool He uh, lists off uh, kind of the addresses of all the SST offices that he uh, can recall before, during, and after his time with the label and gives little anecdotes and uh, it's really good, everyone should check it out
0: Yeah, ultra detail um, as usual for Joe Very cool
1: Uh, Yeah, Spiel 2, did you check out the so i posted on facebook on our facebook page the martin bc uh bc 35 release did you did you have a look at that
0: i did check it out i haven't listened to it yet um is it like is it like a uh, kind of martin bc and friends doing a one off is that kind of what it was
1: uh well i don't know if he plays on it or just recorded it or and like slash produced it it sounds like I mean there's a write up on the Bandcamp page. So <clears throat> just to go back if anybody anybody listening doesn't know who Martin is he he I guess engineered and produced some SST recordings like Sonic Youth Evil and The Blind Idiot God self-titled and some of the other Sonic Youth uh EPs and stuff. And he's worked with uh, all kinds of bands, I think lots of like New York bands. Yeah. And on the so on this recording It's like members of Sonic Youth, Swans, uh, Cop Shoot Cop, Live Skull, Alice Donut, Lubricated Goat, and some newer bands like Pop 1280. Do you know that band? I don't. I have one of their albums that's called Imps of Perversion. It's really good. You should check it out. I think you might like it. It's kind of like noisy post-punk. Okay. It's on that Sacred Bones label.
0: Interesting. Well, there's, I mean, the thing that caught my attention, I, I know a little bit about Martin B.C. Um, he also put out some records, I think, on New Alliance Records.
1: At least one, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. But what caught my attention is because there's a few bands on there that I'm a big fan of, like Cop Shoot, Cop and Lubricated Goat, and I can't remember some of the other ones you listed off there. So I went just briefly checked out the website. It's on my To Go Back To list.
1: Yeah, there's only two songs posted on their band camp, but by the time this posts, I think the whole thing should be out. It is it is available on vinyl as well, and CD. It sounds really good. I don't know a lot about this BC studio. I'm assuming it's his studio. Yeah. And this is kind of celebrating its 35th anniversary, as far as I can tell. I didn't read up on it too much. Uh, I, got an, I got a recommendation for you. Lay it on me. You like Helmet right?
0: Yes, especially early and mid-Helmet. Um, I do listen to the later stuff when it comes out, but I only really go back to the early stuff.
1: Yeah, and you like Unsane, I know that. You need oh, yeah. you need to check out this band, Wrong.
0: Oh yeah, I've read about them. I haven't checked it out, but uh, is it good?
1: Yeah, so this is their second album. They have, they have uh, a self-titled album that came out, I think Either last year or 2016. The new one's called Feel Great. It's on Relapse. It you'll like it. I do. do. You? Yeah.
0: It's on my to-do list.
1: Turned out a punk. Do you know that podcast with Damian Abrams from Fucked Up?
0: Yeah, you've mentioned it to me. I've never checked it out though.
1: Yeah, so he had Jack Black, the actor, on it recently. Like so his band had toured with Tenacious D at some point. He kept getting hit, like, his whole thing is, like, talking to people about how they got into punk rock, and he, uh, Damien's, like, super into, like, hardcore, especially. Yeah. And he knows, like, a lot about it, like, right down to, like, really nerdy shit, like pressings and, uh, you know, who all played in, in what bands. Anyways, he's talking to Jack Black, and Jack Black's was, like, not a hardcore guy, but he go Jack Black goes, you know what's a band I liked that uh, my friend had the album is that band Firehose. He, and he's talking about uh, Raging Full On. He goes, me and my friend had this thing called The Needle Test, where we would just drop the needle anywhere on that album. And 100% of the time, wherever you dropped it, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was cool and worth mentioning because you and I both love Firehose. Hose.
0: And especially that record.
1: Yeah. Uh, What else do I have? Oh, uh, last podcast you told me to check out a band called 31 Knots and a website called Fecking Bahamas. I checked out both. Uh Uh-oh. So uh, Fecking Bahamas is a great website. Everyone should check it out if they haven't. Thanks for uh, hipping me to it. I I didn't dive too deep into it, but I did spend about an hour scrolling through their 100... best I'm par- I know I'm, I'm not sure what it's exactly called but it's basically the hundred greatest math rock albums you've never heard
0: yep and that's I'm the one
1: I'm a guy who thinks I've heard like every album or at least heard of every album there are like I would say about 75 percent of that stuff I've never heard of which is yeah, awesome there, for me
0: it's a really good um, list of stuff that I mean I discovered a bunch of bands on there like 31 knots but it also has a bunch of obscure and I, and again I'm not sure I would call them math but definitely noisy and maybe noise math or whatever obscure stuff that I have always loved like a band called Table was a band called Crane a band called Pencil there's there's just a ton of bands on that list uh, a lot of whom were on yeah uh, for those who might be familiar with the label Homestead or Dutch East India in the uh, early 90s and stuff and it's cool that they're kind of hipping people to those old records because i mean
1: well the cool thing about it, it is there's each band has a like a generally a youtube uh video where you can hear a song
0: yeah you can just check like just sh- sample it and, you know some of it is really ultra tapity tap tap you know math rock just ultra intricate and that's not the direction I lean on that list so I was able to get through those pretty quick but there is a ton of kind of noisy uh amphetamine reptile homestead almost discordy type stuff that I really dug.
1: Yeah I wasn't into all of it but I definitely found some stuff that I took note of and will be adding to my list of stuff I'm looking for. And I and I haven't even been through all of it. It's a it's a really cool list, though. Kudos to the guys that put it and gals that put it together. It's really good. But uh, I did listen to a Thirty One Knots album that they recommend on that site called "A Word Is Also a Picture of a Word." Yep. It. it I mean, it looks like Thirty One Knots has like, you know, a lot of records, like probably ten or more, maybe.
0: Yeah, and they have few phases for sure.
1: Yeah, this one that I listened to was good. It wasn't like... I didn't add it to my list of, of albums I'm looking for. Let's put it that way. What? What? It was just okay.
0: Oh, come on. Did you notice on that list, though, um, of the the 100 math rock albums you've never heard, there's a, a really good Canadian band on there?
1: Uh, are we talking Pigment Vehicle? Oh, yeah. Well, we've mentioned them before, and you and I are both big fans I do have. To, I do have to say. Uh, I mean, again, kudos to them for even including Pigment Vehicle. Wouldn't have been the one I would have put on there, but they they chose "Murders Only Foreplay" when you're hot for revenge, which is an amazing album. I, yeah, I, I would have gone with "Perfect Cop Mustache" myself.
0: Yeah, and I would have put "Independent Women Are So Damn Cool." So, but I mean, it's it They're just all, it's,
1: every Pigment Vehicle album's good. So.
0: I know, it just speaks to how comprehensive and cool that list is. They also have a a, a number of articles, The History of Math Rock, which are a good read. There's, a, there's mention,
1: a glaring omission too, though.
0: <laughs> What's that?
1: Uh, box that, Lunch.
0: That, oh, Box Lunch, yeah. Not that you're a music snob.
1: <laughs> What's that box, box Lunch album called? The Rock Box, the Pebble Pusher?
0: Something like that.
1: I got it right here. Yeah,
0: that's funny how we... How uh, I think you and I are the only people on the planet that still know or listen to that record. Um, the Rock Box,
1: The Rock Box, A Pebble Pusher, The Pebble Pusher, A Pitbull. Great album.
0: Yeah, that's good too. It's probably impossible to find. I got one got more. Any- They're from okay, Winnipeg, hey? Yes.
1: Box, box Lunch, they were from Winnipeg. Yeah, I got one more. I saved this one for last because uh, I remember you telling me one time that I, I always come up with stuff that blows your mind.
0: you either come up with stuff that blows my mind or you you don't like what i like and you rub it in
1: (laughs) okay well uh i got so um here's another part uh, jeff Dahl connection part 20 you ready for this so i was Uh, i was so ready for it i was flipping through my jeff Dahl albums okay And I was trying to find the ones that uh, Bruce Duff plays on. Because I'm kind of obsessed with this right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I pulled out a record that I haven't listened to in years called, because it's not one of my favorites, called Wasted Remains of a Disturbing Childhood. Okay, I'm going to tell you who plays on this album. Are you ready? Oh, yes. Jeff Dahl. Rat Boy.
0: What's his real name?
1: Oh, I can't remember
2: can't remember now. Mr. I knew it.
1: Mr. Rap Boy is his real name. Uh, John Duffy. I don't know who he is. Okay. On drums and sax, Dave Naz.
0: No way. Cool.
1: No way. Who's Dave Naz, Ryan?
0: He, well, he's the, uh, the drummer and singer for Chemical People, also the first drummer for Down By Law.
1: Ding, ding, ding. Guest... <laughs> guest vocalist Dave Smalley
0: oh cool yep dude what record is that
1: Wasted Remains of a Disturbing Childhood
0: and it's a Jeff Dahl record yep okay I gotta get that the
1: SST connection continues and uh, who's Dave Smalley I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast already knows but fav- favorite Dave Smalley album Ryan go
0: Me? Oh, Dag Nasty, Can I Say, for sure. But he's also in DYS, All, and uh, Down By Law. Also the Sharpshooters and and a bunch of other kind of one-off bands. Don't Sleep, he's in a a new band called Don't Sleep that put out a 12-inch and a single last year, Killer Records.
1: You like Can I Say better than All Roy Says?
0: Oh, totally. Like, listen, listen, I love Dave Smalley era of All. But Dag Nasty, can I say, is for me is better than any all album that Dave Smalley's on. Period.
1: Okay, did I blow your mind at least?
0: Oh, it's so incredibly—it's so blown. I have to find that record now.
1: All right, blew it wide open. What do you got?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I feel like um, I'm overspieled now. Uh, you had quite the list there. Well, I guess the only thing I would mention. You know, it was just Record Store Day, and I can't help but mention a couple of SST connections. Um, we're recording this in April, and this will probably come out a few weeks later, or maybe even a little over a month later. And um, I I have kind of a love-hate relationship with Record Store Day. I, uh, I don't like how they, you know, re-release a ton of shitty soundtracks and, like, you really don't need another pressing of that record like there's you know of this like mainstream 80s record that you can find for 4 bucks in any used bin you just don't need it but well,
1: obviously somebody does i just hate the way it clogs up the pressing plants it just drives me insane but continue yeah.
0: well they they every now and then they put out a bunch of releases um, that i got to check out and there's a number of SST Related releases this time around. Not only did they uh, re-release the Circle Jerks record "Gig," the Descendants have a new single out. It's called "Who We Are."
1: Yeah, people this, were all over that.
0: Well, it, it might just be
1: who I follow on social media, but I saw tons of people posting that record.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's good. It's solid. It's ultra political. It's it's definitely a shot right at the Trump administration no doubt about it music and lyrics by Milo Ackerman on, uh, well that's the, not the, new the, they did
1: that song American on you
0: uh, no, well no no I mean okay so American came out during the George W. Bush era mm-hmm. this is I would say this song Who We Are is a much more overtly even more overtly political shot right at Trump um, and it's a good song too let's see Mike Watt put out uh, two singles. He's on um, a split single, and he also put out a single by a combo called Sock Tight, which is him and Raymond Pettibone.
1: Now, Raymond plays on that? that? Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, he's a musician on it. And then um, you know that record label Soul Jazz Records? They put out a bunch of kind of R&B, reggae, but also some punk reissues.
1: Yeah, I've got all those Punk Forty Five albums. They're me, me too. C- kind of hit or miss, but when they're they're hit, they're they're pretty good. Great liner yeah, I've, notes.
0: Yeah, I really liked the American ones so far. I found the French Punk Forty Five not the greatest, even though I like a lot of French punk bands. Anyways, they put out like a limited edition five seven inch box set, an addition of five independent singles in the original cover art. Oh yeah, and one of the uh, seven inches is by the Flesh Eaters. Oh
1: cool! Where,
0: so another SST connection there. So SST still representing, and you know what? I'm just I'm just scratching the surface. There's probably a ton of other SST related releases that came out on Record Store Day, and I just I haven't even dug that deep, but those ones are obvious and worth mentioning. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, um, I, us- I usually ignore Record Store Day. Record Store Day, but there was two releases I had to have this year. So,
0: Dream Syndicate and what was the other one?
1: Ah, uh, this Nicky Sudden thing. I'm a Nicky Sudden freak, and there's a he had a band in the '80s called the Last Bandits in the World, and I didn't even know it was a Record St- Store Day release. I got I asked my local record store guy Stu to order it in for me and it came in but it was record store day release and so i had yeah to, i can't hold it for you can't hold it so yeah but i got them both so i'm happy
0: yeah i got a i got a bunch of stuff like i got the tad record the wipers record probably oh. the thing i'm most excited for getting though is i had to order it because i'm not even sure it came out in north america i had to order it from the uk and it's a uh, a box set by wire Go it's ahead. their it's like their first seven singles in a box remastered, and then there's some unreleased songs on an extra seven inch, and then the final ninth seven inch is a uh, a bonus seven inch that came with their record one five four. Oh, cool! Way back when, so I'm really excited to get that. But what's um, the
1: Wipers? But, uh, you said it's live. I live in
0: 1982. The Wipers.
1: This is unre- like previously unreleased recordings.
0: Yeah, I I did not compare whether it is it's also available on Greg Sage's website. You know, he has that Xeno Records and you could buy some live stuff there.
1: Yeah, like I've bought a couple CDRs off of there.
0: Yeah, well this is on vinyl, so
1: Is it one of those though? You don't know. I
0: didn't I didn't check. Okay. I just figured since it's vinyl, I'm getting it even if it I could get a CDR off of the Xeno Records site.
1: Right. All right, we should get into Triumph of the Will, hey?
0: Let's do it. History lesson, part one.
1: We've discussed Overkill before on the Hell's Getting Hotter single, but I'm going to just give a little recap of who Overkill is. Is that okay?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because Hell's Getting Hotter, let's go back, like that was SST number eight. So that's 30 30 releases ago.
1: All right. So uh, June 1980, Kurt Markham, who we just talked about in the DC3 interview not that long ago, uh, asked Felice Lococo to start a new wave band, apparently, calling themselves Mop, taken from a sketch on The Muppet Show, which I assume to be this uh, rag mop band. It's like these singing mops.
0: (laughs) I don't remember (laughs) that.
1: Uh, And uh, and then Kurt teaches his friend Ron Cordy how to play the bass and asks him to join. And uh, they write some songs... American Dream, Triumph of the Will, and Chains, but then Kurt quits the band, and then uh, Joe. Oh, I'm gonna screw up his last name. Uh, you know what? I'm not even gonna say it, <laughs> cause uh, we this comes up in the interview, and I'm gonna massacre his last name. So I'll leave that to uh, Felice. But he comes into the picture uh, to sing, uh, and they kind of discuss becoming a punk band. This is around November 1980. Ron Cordy is on bass. Kurt uh, is on guitar at this point, but then switches to drums. And they tried to get Felice into the band at this time, but apparently he didn't want to cut his hair. So they, uh, they got Jeff Dimmick into the band. And at one point, Joe went away on vacation, the singer, and they had a gig coming up, coming up so Kurt asked Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski to introduce him to Merrill Ward, who was kind of like a, you hear, you hear him described as a Black Flag roadie sometimes, and I, he was also playing in the NIG heist. And uh, so they asked it, uh, Greg and Chuck to, to introduce uh, Merrill to the band, and Merrill practiced with the band for about a week, and they decided to stick with him, letting Joe go when he returned from his vacation. And uh, apparently around this time, Merrill was also being discussed as a Black Flag vocalist this is like uh in between like when des was still in the band and they were before they got henry and uh it's interesting with this band because at this time they're gigging around uh, la with like you know uh saccharine trust and the stains and they're playing shows with the circle jerks and fear and black flag and the angry Samoans and the step and saint vitus and that's kind of their scene they're gonna kind of Cross over, I guess, into like a total like metal scene, like the L.A. Sunset Strip scene, eventually. And uh, around this time, Jeff Dimick quit, and Felice joined in October of '81. And uh, April 13th through 15th, '82, they recorded the bed tracks for Triumph of the Will. And I think on the album it says record the something like basic tracks recorded and engineered somewhere in Hollywood. Actually, in that uh, Joe Carducci blog that I mentioned at the start of the episode, he says that those bed tracks were recorded at Unicorn. So I I found that interesting. The vocals weren't finished at this time. The album was engineered by Glenn Feet, F-E-I-T. And he's really been around. He did Side 2 of TV Party, the TV Party single. He did some stuff with Power Trip, who we've discussed. That's a Jeff Dahl band. Yeah. And uh, the Nuns, Alejandro Escovito's punk band.
0: Well, I like the Nuns.
1: Yeah. And he also did Too Fast for Love by Motley Crue. (laughs) And so they, uh, like I said, they recorded the beds, but then uh, there's tensions in the band over gear and guitar tones. Meryl isn't getting along so well with the rest of the band. There's maybe some suggestions of some ego problems. He's not showing up for practice. And as you'll hear in the interview, they kick Meryl out, and they ask Steve from the Stepmothers to sing. Uh, they, they eventually get this guy, Steve Hammond, a.k.a. Scott Kidd. Fleece talks about that kind of era of the band as well. What I find interesting is, this is the at this point, they get approached by Brian, Brian Slagle from Metal Blade, And he asks them to be on this Metal Massacre 2 compilation. And the bands on there are more bands like uh, Armored Saint, Trauma, which is Cliff Burton from Metallica's band before he joined Metallica. And uh, Bitch, Malice, Savage Grace. I think that's around the time that Overkill kind of turned into more of a, a metal band or trying to kind of conform with that scene a little bit. Around this time, SST called to let them know that uh, they were releasing Hell's Getting Hotter. Shortly after that, they broke up. Story goes, Felice went by SST in 1984, and Greg Ginn told him uh, he wanted to finish Triumph of the Will, and it was finally released in 1985 after Mer- Merrill wrote lyrics and did the vocal tracks. So that's kind of the, the history of uh, Overkill in a nutshell. You have anything to add to that, Ryan, or do you want to get to the interview?
0: Yeah, no, good reminder. It's been a long time since we've talked about these guys. Um, let's let's get to the interview then.
1: Felice, welcome
2: to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me on today's uh, show.
1: Yeah, we're we're thrilled to have you. So we don't know a lot about um, the release. It's not super well documented. I love the album. It's a great it's a great album. Kind of, I would mm-hmm. say maybe a bit. Uh, one of the dark horses on the label. It's not one I- I've heard a lot about, you know, in mm-hmm. in some of the books that have come out, you know, kind of revolve around the label a little bit. So why don't you take us back to early Overkill, maybe following the, the debut single? How did, uh, how did the lineup come together that went on to record this album?
2: Okay, well, I'll tell you, the actual lineup started in 1980, in summer of 1980, when Kurt was putting together he he wanted to put together a new wave band and i told him hey let's see what we can do so we got together me him and ron cordy and we got together and uh, we wrote three songs he wrote the uh, american dream and these songs were all entitled and uh and i brought in triumph of the will and chains everybody received credit on triumph of the will and chains in fact, there's a <laughs> there's a little misconception on the record. Greg Ginn had given Kurt all the songwriting credit, and uh, really, Ron and and uh, I had written a good portion of that record. We just never got credited for the music.
1: Right. Uh, one so, of the songs you just mentioned, Greg Greg Gin has a co-write on "American Dream."
2: Well, he maybe lyrically, but Kurt, Kurt wrote the whole music for it. Right. I know that for a fact. Maybe lyrically he had had it had something to do with it, but nothing uh, as far as the uh, music, because that song was written in 1980. Right. And what happened is that we played together for about a month and then uh, Kirk got upset with with Ron because he had used his Les Paul custom case for a skateboard. And he just quit. Huh. And then two months later, they just they got their differences ironed out and then they formed Overkill. Okay. Right. And I was the first guy to be asked to play guitar. And I just told him, I said, no way. I'm not cutting my fucking hair to play in your band. I screw this. I'm not cutting my hair yeah. off because I'm not into that image shit. Right. Okay. So, uh, it took them quite a while to get me in the band. So Kurt actually started out playing guitar in overkill and uh, I had remember letting him use one of my fifth one of my marshals to play a backyard party and uh, got the neighbors real upset. One of the neighbors called the cops and she said she thought World War Three had started <laughs> 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 when they when they cranked it up. And I think after the show I told Kurt, I said, Man, you gotta you gotta go back to the drums, you gotta get a guitar player and he kept saying, Well, I want you to play guitar and I said, Yeah, well, you know, my problem is this cutting my hair off image you know i don't want to cut it were, you, I were you a metal guy at the time i was coming from a hard rock metal background yes yeah but i like all sorts of music and i really liked the music that they played it was really simple it was really easy i didn't realize how good they were until i heard that that recording the hell's getting hotter recording and i said man my guitar playing will fit real good into this yeah and then i called kurt up and I told him, hey, you know, I'm interested in everything. But then the hair issue came up again, and Meryl was telling Kurt, ah, tell him he's got to shave his head, he's got to cut his hair. I said, screw it, I'm not going to do it. And finally, I just got tired of playing with other guys, uh, playing copy songs, and I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And, you know, I decided, can we come to a compromise? He said, don't worry about your hair. He goes, I know you're going to take a lot of shit from the punks, but uh, they're going to go ahead and accept you anyway after they see you play. Right. And sure enough, he was right. I took a lot of abuse, spitting, throwing people, throwing shit at me, them going, eh, you fucking hippie and everything else. And I just said, <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. It was just it was, you know, it's just like, oh, God, you know, I was looking for trouble with right. the long hair. But then uh, I think after the, after I played, they finally accepted me. And that's what happened.
1: Do, do you think they wanted you because so, they wanted to go in more of a hard rock direction?
2: The band didn't really want to do hard rock. They wanted to do heavy metal. It was just that what they wanted for in a guitar player wasn't my my vision. There was the, the big controversy about me using a Laney, an old Laney clip head. And I had uh, hooked it up with my Marshall running a preamp out into the input of the Laney. And I got this really supercharged Tony Iommi type tone and I loved it, but Ron hated it because uh because it just went shh, sh- sh- and he called it my snake my snake box. <laughs> now <laughs> I'll tell you that did not go over well with me because as far as I'm concerned, a marshal was a marshal. Everybody had a marshal back then. I wanted to do my own thing and get my own sound. So that's what I was more concerned about doing. So that's why the Marshall ended up on the record and not the Laney, because uh Greg and Chuck and uh, Joe Carducci all wanted me to use the Laney, but Ron wasn't going to give in to that. He just didn't. He thought he thought it couldn't be masked. He thought that his couldn't be masked. Right. And if you hear all these guys today using their supercharged Randalls and Mesa Boogies and everything else, they're all um, they all got that hissing sound in there. And, and but they use noise gates. Well, back in 1981, and 1982. I think there was maybe one noise gate you could use, and it was called the MXR Noise Gate Line Driver, and it was just utter crap.
1: Yeah. I'd I'd say your tone sounds really good on this album.
2: Well, you know what? It took years for me to realize it wasn't the type of gear I used. It was what I was playing. Because right now, what I practice with, uh, I practice with a Zoom unit through a a little uh, 10-inch Hughes & Kettner... uh, Ah, speaker cab with a, a power amp attached to it, and pretty much any type of tone I choose, whether it be a, a Marshall or a Laney or a Mesa Boogie or anything like that, it sounds like me. Right? Okay. I, you know, there's no there's no sounding like anybody else. I sound the same. It's just that there's a little added difference to the tonality of the guitar playing. Getting on, you want to know the story of Merrill too, right? Well,
1: yeah. So. The story I have is that you put down the beds for Triumph of the Will in somewhere in 82, somewhere around April of 82, and then uh, then Merrill's out of the band shortly after.
2: Yeah, well, you know what led up to it? It was never that Merrill's ability on stage. I've read stories where people said he got kicked out because he lit his balls on fire, and that's not the case at all. We never questioned Merrill's ability on stage. Okay, it was his off-stage annex. And uh, there's interviews out there that he's doing that he had very self-centered reasons for joining the band. And uh, pretty much it was drugs, money, and girls. He made a comment about – he said people that take it to the scene too seriously develop bad attitudes. Well, uh, when we went up to San Francisco – uh, we got to hear what Meryl was really like off stage. Okay, but it actually started about a month prior, or maybe two or three weeks prior to his final ejection from the band. And uh, it was uh, we played a show with Saint Vitus and the Stepmothers at Al- Alpine Village, and we told uh, when he booked the Stepmothers, make them the headliner because we're not we're not good enough to be the headliner. Well, it turned out we ended up being the headliner anyway because, uh, uh, we got the crowd going and after we got done playing the punks and everybody else didn't want to stay and see the stepmothers. But getting to the point, what started Merrill Merrill's, uh, demise was Merrill wanted to wear Kurt's leather jacket and Kurt has a special leather jacket that has his M on it, you know, for Markham and, uh. And and Kurt told Meryl, no, no, you're not wearing my jacket. You're not going to get it all sweaty and everything. And, Mer- and Kurt- Merrill goes to Kurt, oh, well, you don't let me wear your leather jacket, man. I'm not going to sing. And so Henry was there, and we couldn't find Merrill anywhere. And we told Henry what was going on. And Henry goes, fuck that little prick. I'm going to go on and sing if that son of a bitch doesn't want to do it. Henry Rollins was going to sing for us that night right? because Merrill was a thing. So we went in. The following week we did our record and we got the instrumental tracks done in two days. And Merrill tried doing all his tracks, but from what Joe Carducci told me when they did decide to finish up the albums that Merrill's voice would give out after one song and they'd have to go wait a day or two for him to do the vocals. Right. So we went and played three more gigs that week. We had a pretty good gig at Mad West where uh Glenn Feet, who was the engineer for the record, had brought some record company officials, and uh, <laughs> he wanted us to kick Merrill out of the band because Merrill shipped his dick at the record executives from A&M. Right. And we were just laughing our asses off because we didn't want A&M signing us anyway because they had treated other band- other hard rock, heavy metal bands bad, mm-hmm. and we felt they weren't going to do nothing for us. Right. So we didn't really care. And we kind of developed a riff with uh, Glenn Feet there because of that because glenn really liked our music too doing the engineering on the record there i hate to go back backtrack but it was funny because going back to the alpine village show again which was the week prior okay we got on stage and meryl was was in prime form on stage and i wish i had that tape um joe says he has it Carducci says he has it. He just has so many tapes from the '80s of all these bands recording. He can't find this Alpine Billish tape. Merrill's going off in the audience, and he's going, "Oh, see, we have a large homosexual audience here tonight," and everybody just starts booing him and everything. <laughs> and we're just laughing our asses off because he's getting the crowd going. I mean, Merrill was great at riling up the crowd, right. and we didn't have a problem with that. We never had a problem with that. It's just that. The week after, when we did the recording, we went up to San Francisco, and we were up there in San Francisco. We were up at On Broadway, which is above the Mob Hue Gardens, and Merrill had went ahead. And he was talking to a couple of groupies, and he starts going, you know, these guys are my backup band. I'm going to quit them anyway. And, I mean, he's talking right in the next room. There's holes in the walls for us to hear through it. And Kurt was looking at me and looking at Ron and saying, man, this is not happening. And Kurt made the decision right there to get rid of him. So after, our, after we got back uh, that Saturday from San Francisco and played our show at uh, Dancing Waters that night, uh, we gave him the boot.
1: You mentioned the stepmothers earlier. So again, you can correct, correct me if this is wrong, but I have it that briefly Steve Jones from the stepmothers replaces Merrill.
2: Yes, he did replace him for two months. Okay. Two months. I had to make a correction on that Wikipedia article, too, because Steve had originally put it in there that he was there for a year, and uh, that was wrong. Steve was only with us for two months and two or three gigs, okay, and he decided it was too far for him to drive, and he didn't want to leave the stepmothers, and uh, I just said, okay, whatever, so we went out, and then we got another singer, but getting back to the Merrill Merrill thing, um, there was... uh, the day after we kicked him off, I got a call from Kurt's brother, Dave. And he says, Felice, you got to get over here right now. Greg Ginn and Chukkowski are over here right now. And they're not letting off a of Kurt. And they got Meryl along, and they're ganging up on him and everything. So I ran over there and got in my car since I only lived about a mile from Kurt. And I I told him, I said, listen, okay, we're a band, okay? There's nobody that's better in this band. It takes four people to – do this music okay it didn't go over well but then greg made the decision well if you don't have meryl if you're not going to have him sing for you anymore we're not going to put out the record so he just shelved it for two years or whatever so the record was originally supposed to be released in june of 1982
1: so then steve jones is out and i guess no plans to have him do the vocals then on the album
2: No, no no the record was just totally in the can right so, they weren't going to do anything with the record. They were going to shelve it.
1: Right. And then Scott Kidd joins. How did, how did you get hooked up with him? Was he from another band?
2: No, he he joined us through a recycler ad. We had auditioned two other people prior to him, and they came in with, with chips on their shoulders, and we decided we didn't want to have nothing to do with people that had chips on their shoulders. And he came in. It was like a breath of fresh air as far as his attitude, and the guy could sing. The one thing we didn't realize is that his lyrics were just freaking horrible and they were all about one subject or two subjects, parting and getting laid and, you know, the sort of thing that they talked about in the 80s, you right. know, yeah. the cock rock yep. stuff and that I I had to get on him when when I wrote a song. I told him uh, when we started writing our newer metal stuff, I spent all night writing this song because Ron Cordy had told me. That, um, yeah, you're not gonna, you're not gonna finish it, man. You can't write anything. You don't ever write anything in this band. And I just said, you wait, I'll have a song for you tomorrow. I brought it back in. We played it. They really liked it. Let Scott write the lyrics. So Scott comes back in. And what is it about going out to a party, getting drunk, getting laid and getting dumped by your girlfriend? I just said, no, you're not putting that stuff on my music. No way. I'm tired of it because, um, When we first got him, Kurt told him to go ahead and rewrite lyrics for all the songs that were on the SST record. American Dream became China Born Girl. Ladies in Leather became Can't Live Forever. Uh, Victimized became L.A.'s Going Crazy. But the subject matter of all his lyrics was the same. It was was no differentiating, uh, and there was no real thought to what he was putting on the record. So... I had told Kurt we need to start looking for another singer right. because the people that have seen us with Merrill are not going to accept this guy, and sure enough, I was right.
1: So, you did play shows with him, and obviously.
2: Oh, we we played shows with him up in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and you did a
1: three I song demo with him
2: as well. Is that true? Yeah, we did a metal ma- We yeah, we did the Metal Massacre songs uh, brian slagle from metal blade who was the president at the time liked us and he said okay go ahead and record a three song demo so we gave him uh, no holds barred which was done two times once on triumph of the will and once on metal blade and then two of the uh, so-called radio friendly songs that i still have a problem with today because kurt was thinking that uh, well, maybe we can get the record companies and the radio stations to play our music. Maybe our m- music is too rough edged. And I said, Kurt, that's not the way to think. We start deviating from what we're doing, we will be uh, thought of, of, of as not having any integrity. I just said, okay, do whatever you want, you know. But when the crowds don't like it, then we get rid of them. Yeah. And sure enough, we did eventually.
1: So no, no holds barred. Is that the only? track with uh, scott on vocals that was officially released yeah that's the only one what were the two other tracks do you remember from that session Are these, oh, these uh, are like the yeah. radio friendly ones <laughs>
2: <laughs> kurt said brian slagle wanted to, us to do wheels of fire and she got me again and i said oh how how convenient is that i mean all the songs that you wrote uh, come on we got better songs than that how about how about ron's song come on in which was pretty much inspired by motorheads ace of spades i don't know if it's still out there but i got copies of that tune it starts out like ace of spades with that bass line da, and uh then i told him i said you're not going to get your wish kurt since we're paying paying for your uh paying your way here because kurt never offered any money into the band he figured uh you know his drumming was good enough that he didn't have to pay his way and pretty much ron me and scott financed the band into recordings and other things into promotion and everything else
1: was there any talk felice at that time of you like doing more for metal blade or was it just kind of a one-off thing
2: there was talk in may i had a little talk in may of 1983 with brian slagle to release a full-length album of our music but uh, ron decided to quit because he couldn't deal with Kurt's attitude anymore. When we started getting popular again up in Hollywood, of course the girls started coming around, and then Kurt met this girl that drew up the album cover for Triumph of the Will. Okay, and he started getting all sappy with her and everything, and she was making contributions to the band. You've seen Spinal Tap before, how Nigel hates hates uh, Derek Saint. Now what, what's his the, name? Derek Saint Hubin's wife. Yeah, yeah. Derek, yeah. okay. Well, that's the way we were with Kurt and his girlfriend because Kurt was listening to his girlfriend. Said, stop listening to her, man. She's going <laughs> to screw this whole thing up. The problem is is that uh, uh, Kurt would not listen to reason when somebody wanted to put money behind us. Now, you know who Alan Niven is, yep, correct? Yep. Guns and Roses. Okay. He became Guns N' Roses' manager, okay? Yep. Now, he tried giving us some advice. He was working for Green World Records at the time. And he told us what we were doing wrong and what we should be doing. And I knew the guy was talking good. He wasn't talking bullshit. And Curtin wouldn't listen to him. Well, that was one opportunity we had lost. The second opportunity we lost was with uh, a woman up in uh, putting on the country club shows up in the valley uh, with uh, the Heavy Metal night, okay? And that's where we had opened for Wasp, and I'll tell you the story about Wasp, too, in a little bit, because uh, that's got its interesting beginnings on how we got such a a good uh, rapport going with those guys. Uh, But she had come up to us at the show, her and her, my partner, Ron Nagby, who were putting on these shows at the country club. Now, you know she's renting this big old hall up in the San Fernando Valley for thousands from the Wolf and Miller group and putting on these big metal shows. And she comes to us. She goes, I want you, she goes, I want to manage you guys. You guys are the best band in LA. I mean, you know, I didn't know, but she saw something in us. She wanted to, us to be a straight leather biker group. Okay. And I said, I can live with that. I, just, as long as I get rid of all the chains and the, studs and everything else right. because everybody was wearing them okay so
1: by this time motley uh, crew's kicking around i assume and and stuff like that
2: no motley Crue was doing pretty good at this time yeah okay she went up to kurt because i told her it says you got to run it by kurt because basically he's the leader of the band okay when she told kurt that oh, i'm not into that stuff and da, 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 da. well she had plans for us to open for motorhead And she got Motorhead in there in August of that year. It turns out that we broke up when she did call us to see if we'd accept to play the show. And Kurt had to, you know, tell telling, oh, we split up today. We just got done. We just called it quits and everything. But it's just that Kurt really never wanted to be successful on an international level. You've read stories about him being an Iron Butterfly, correct? Yep. OK, well, that was only two gigs anyway, because I heard he couldn't get along with Mike Panera. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I've heard other stories, but I'm not going to I'm not going <laughs> to assume what I've heard, because uh, he did get to play with Iron Butterfly when Mike Panera had reformed the band Okay, and he took over Long bushing. You
1: were mentioning Wasp. Is that kind of like the scene you guys were in? Is that like are those the kinds of bands you were playing with at that time?
2: Uh, we were playing with them. We were playing with malice. We were playing with bitch. Who else were we playing with? We were playing with a lot of the hair bands too, like black and blue and, uh, just a bunch of them, you know, and it was never, we hardly ever got any other metal acts to play with us.
1: Not, not the SST type of scene then.
2: no, No, not even close. Yeah. I had made a suggestion, to Ron about St. Vitus, but Ron said, no, 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 I don't want St. Vitus opening for us. uh, They'll turn off the crowd and everything, you know? So I just said, you know, whatever they're the best matched for us. Anyway, getting back to the wasp thing. The reason why we got on with wasp is, uh, I had a friend that I met years prior to being an overkill. His name was Ed and he had known Chris Holmes personally and had played in bands with him. So when I found out Chris Holmes was the guitarist in there, I went up to him. I said, hey, man, we'd love to open for your band. And Chris asked me, uh, well, uh, all I'm concerned about is if you guys kick ass and, you know, bust ass and you promote your shows and everything. And I said, we certainly do. And uh, we got to open four or five gigs with them. And uh, I heard some other bands were (laughs) crying about us all was opening for them. And one show, I think one or two shows, we had to close the show for Wasp because these other bands said, "Oh, this not fair. You're giving overkill all the gigs, and you know you're letting them go on before us, and we have to go on after you. Nobody's around to see us, and, you know."
1: Is Wasp pretty like already fairly big by this point, or do they have their album out, or they, like, what? Kind Wasp
2: of... was huge. Wasp was huge in the clubs in 1982. Yeah. Okay. It's like. They did this full-on stage show, and I was just amazed. But the one thing is, Wasp had their music down, okay? They had great songs on that first album. I I love that first line. Me too. With Tony Richards and Chris Holmes and Blackie and and Randy, those those guys had their shit down, okay? And I really thought highly of them. I'll tell you, you know, I got I got the chance to see Metallica when they had Ron McGovney and Dave Mustaine in them, too. Oh, yeah. Okay? And Metallica, I'm sure you've read about the stories about us in our meeting with Metallica, right?
1: More or less that you, I think maybe I saw that you played the show where they hooked up with Cliff Burton, or first met him, maybe.
2: That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. They were there to check out Cliff Burton, and they had stayed for our set. I was watching these two guys out in the... <laughs> by the bar and, and and Lars had his shirt off and he's swinging around his head and he's going, Woo, 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 woo. And I, I'm just saying, I'm looking at I'm looking at Curtin. I said, Who in the hell are those guys? And so we when we got done with our set, we went up uh, stairs to our dressing room. They came up, both him and uh, James came up there and Lars said, Oh, the underdogs kicked the competition's ass tonight. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, we didn't know there was another band in LA playing the same kind of music. and We play in Metallica, you know, and we thought we were the only guys doing this this punk metal, speed metal type music. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, I got to come check you guys out. When are you guys playing? He's, oh, next month at the Troubadour. So we played another gig at the Troubadour. Then the following week, I think I went and saw them play uh, with Malice and Pandemonium at the Troubadour for Thanksgiving night. And I was impressed. I really was impressed. I didn't think they were anything like us because we seemed like we had our music down a lot tighter. They seemed really loose that night, but they had the energy. That's what was important. I went up and congratulated them for the good set and everything, and I was impressed because I thought they didn't think there was another band out in the States doing the same kind of music.
1: Can you talk for a minute, Felice, about how the album came to finally get finished?
2: In 1984, Greg Ginn had moved SST Records over into my neighborhood in Hawthorne, California. If I correctly remember, he was telling me, he said it'd be a waste not to finish that record. And we're going to go ahead and finish it with Merrill on it. And I made the stupid mistake and say, hey, do you think we can do the guitar tracks? I don't know. What do you think about the guitar tracks? I, think, I, I, I really don't like my own guitar playing on that record.
1: I like it, but I think that's pretty pretty typical that you you know <laughs> a lot of musicians would love to go back Yeah, I, I know would say. a lot
2: of us are very self-critical of ourselves and you know, we think we, we can we can always pull something better off and everything else, but like I said, I wish I got to use that, that laney or anything else, because that laney I just love Black Sabbath back then. Yeah. Black Sabbath was my favorite band. Tony Iommi was the first guitar guitar player i had started listening to and then i progressed to richie blackmore and jimmy page and shanker and leslie west and gary moore and all those guys i never was really into the uh the super shredders like randy and uh eddie because i could never play that fast i mean that's where they determined that how good you were is because of how fast of a guitar player you were And, and really i just said who cares? I'm not in this for a competition. I'm in here to play what I feel. Yeah, that's Well, I'd it.
1: say you've held your own on this album. I mean, your playing's great. It's You definitely have your own style. so, so well, said, I'm glad to
2: hear that because a lot of people tell me that. They say I have my own sound and my own style. Yeah, for sure. And that's without those guys that I just mentioned, I probably would have never developed my own style because I probably would have stuck with one guitar player, yeah. and I
1: didn't. Felice goes back into the studio with... With Greg, I'm assuming, or, or Joe Carducci and Spot to finish the album?
2: Uh, we never did. Uh, music. The music tracks were already done, so Greg wanted to go ahead and get Merrill to finish the songs. And it took him a year later, and the record was released in August of 1985. Now, I don't want to start up a lot of crap with the other band in New York right now, but they're trying to say that they were formed behind us formed before us and everything else and i say that's a bunch of baloney because they didn't release their first uh, first official feel the of fire record until two months after triumph of the will had been released because i remember it was released in august of 1985 okay and they started a fewer with sst records saying hey we had the name before and everything else and greg had told them well you know what he goes. You better not put your name together and everything else, because we don't need you confusing it with our, with our band and everything else. Because Craig was really hoping that we would get back together after releasing that record, but it wasn't going to happen. Ron wasn't willing to leave, bitch, and I don't think Kurt was really looking into doing anything except playing local gigs anyway. Right. So he's in DC three
1: by this point, I'm assuming, or has come and gone already. Correct. Maybe he
2: was in DC three. Yeah. No, he was in DC3 about 85 or so. Okay.
1: did Lyrically, was were the lyrics like the same as when Merrill had left the band, or did he rewrite some of those?
2: No, the lyrics Merrill wrote were the same pretty much, and I was very, very happy with, with the lyrics, because he wrote his lyrics around personal, uh, uh, personal accounts. Uh, I remember when he wrote the uh, lyrics for Ladies in Leather, he told me it was based upon a dream he had and he said some s&m woman had tied him to a chair and left him there in his underwear and that's the way that song came about and a lot of people don't like it because of that but i just think it's great because it's you know he wrote his stuff around personal experiences you know whether what do you want or uh head on uh,
1: there's a track on Blasting Concept 2 called Over the Edge. Where did that come from? Is that from this original session?
2: Yes, that's from the original session that we did uh, with the other songs. Um, Greg did not put that on the record and I'm kind of upset he didn't.
1: <laughs> did he? Do you think he held it back specifically yeah. for uh, this
2: compilation? or I think he held it back so he could make some more money. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I think he did it was a good song and originally it was an instrumental it wasn't supposed to have any sort of lyrics on it in fact i was taught i had searched for the song on the internet a few weeks back and this guy named jack islap and he's doing his thing he had redone the song and i sent him a, a thank you and i said man you did a really good job and he told me about well, I didn't know what Merrill was singing there and it just sounded like a bunch of gibberish and I said well it was gibberish because it was originally written as an instrumental and Merrill wasn't supposed to sing on it. Oh. It was supposed to be a song before it was our it was our opening song for for quite a few shows. And uh what's so funny about that song is a lot of people think it's it's more related to Motorhead but Ron had written that lyric that our that da 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 He wrote it uh being influenced by Iron Maiden's number of the beast. Okay. Okay. So that's where that came from. It did had nothing to do with Motorhead. And uh in fact um when I joined the band, the only thing I knew about Motorhead is that they had played with Ozzy Osborne at Long Beach Arena in May of that year, and they got booed off the stage at the Aussie concert because people thought they were punk rock. And when somebody brought in the No Life to Hammersmith uh, live album, hey, we discovered another band because we never knew about Motorhead. Right. We never knew about them.
1: So flash forward well, to 2005. five. Um, that is that when you re- okay. reunited as SST Overkill?
2: Yeah, that's, that was my whole idea to call the band SST Overkill. We did a reunion show, and Kirk came up to me and says, "I got a perfect name for the band. Uh, call it Motokill." And I said, "No, no, no. I'm tired of the Motorhead comparisons. We're gonna call it SST Overkill. So people know who we are, and they they know us by the logo anyway. They want to call us Overkill. That's fine because we know we can't go out promoting ourselves with that name. Right? Just Overkill because the New York band had it. So we weren't. Into lawsuits and pissing off the guys in New York, and like I said, I couldn't really give a damn about the name anyway.
1: So this lineup included your original vocalist before
2: Merrill, Joe Joe Garule, Is that correct? Yeah, Joe Joe Joe, Joe Gerlay. Oh, okay. Joe Gerlay, He was the one that co-wrote "Our War," the song that you, uh, the song that you think is a ripoff of "Paid Vacation," which I agree. <laughs> is with that what we because, said? <laughs> oh. God, man, you know what? When you said, it's not Vietnam, it's another oil company scam, I typed that whole phrase in there, and then, boom, the song pops up like that. And I go, you know what? This song this song it is, it is, you know what? <laughs> and I looked at the record history of the Circle Jerks record, yeah. and sure enough, that was released two years prior to Hell's Getting Hotter. Mm-hmm. And I got really upset with it because – I don't know what the hell Ron's thinking, but, you know...
1: Well, it, <laughs> may, it may have been unintentional.
2: Or, well, it could have been, but I don't know.
1: Okay, Felice, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's really appreciated, and it's been great chatting with you.
2: Oh well, well, thank you for having me on.
1: All right, well, there it is. What What'd you think of that, Ryan?
0: Very cool. You know, I didn't really realize... Well, I guess I didn't appreciate how much... Overkill was kind of a, you know, for a moment there, a fixture in the LA metal scene. You know that stuff better than me, but I like you, you mentioned that compilation before and you're listing off a whole bunch of bands. I bet you actually like have records by those bands. Um, I sure do. I just, yeah, I don't know anything about that stuff really. And so it's interesting because, I mean, Triumph of the Will has metal overtones to it, but it still has kind of a hardcore sound to it for a few songs it's it's kind of like a crossover album i guess but way ahead of its time
1: yeah it's kind of got a mix of both there are songs that sound like 70s punk there are songs that sound like hardcore and there are songs that have like metal overtones it's an interesting record we should talk about it let's do it history lesson part two so like we mentioned, uh, Merrill went in with Spot, and I think maybe Joe Carducci too, producing at Total Access in like uh, 84 or 85, I think 84, and wrote lyrics, some of which I think were already uh, written. There is a, like a, a bootleg of some demos that came out in 83 with Scott Kidd on vocals. And they're pretty interesting. They definitely were going in a more metal direction. There's a, I know how, how much a fan you are of double kick, so you probably don't know this. <laughs> you probably, only,
0: only, only if it's on a bolt thrower record. Right. Then I like
1: it. Hey, well bolt thrower rules, man. But um uh you probably are not familiar with the Motorhead song Overkill, are you?
0: you know, I really don't know Motorhead that much. Yeah, it's funny. When you when I listened to this record, Triumph of the Will, yep. Some of it some of it reminded me of a Motorhead sound, I got to be honest.
1: Well, on these 83 de- 83 demos, they're definitely influenced by Motorhead. Most of like the emerging thrash bands were, like Motorhead was a very fast band
0: for its day, right? Oh
1: yeah, for sure. And like the song Overkill is a mid-tempo song with like uh with a double kick in it, but it's like ticka, 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 about that fast. And they do that a lot on these demos. There's like three or four songs that, that have that on it. And there, I think Felice mentions it in the interview. There's a song called Come On In that sounds a lot like Ace of Spades. Yeah. And uh, there's a couple versions of No Holds Barred. Uh, one of them sounds a lot like a band called Diamond Head. Who are like a New album band? Huge influence on Metallica. Like Metallica has covered like uh, th- at least three other songs that I can think of. The Prince, "It's Electric," and "Helpless" is probably the the uh, the most famous one because it's on that Garage Days EP.
0: Does uh, Does New stand for New Wave of British Heavy Metal?
1: Whoa. Check out the did metal, bl- yeah. Check out the metal.
0: Did that blow your mind a little? On,
1: for Ryan. Good job. Yeah, yeah. C- it kind of did a little bit. <laughs> uh, so, like, these were recorded in eighty three, and Kill 'Em All by Metallica came out in eighty three, and a lot of it sounds, it sounds like uh, very similar, and I would say like same kind of influences for sure. There is some interesting stuff on there. There is a track called Wheels of Fire that sounds like something. Kiss would have done with Gene on vocals. Um, there's some of the album stuff like "Head On." Animal is a song which turned into uh, "Head On" on the album. It's it's interesting. "Ladies in Leather" is like slower, and the singer Scott Kidd uses his falsetto mount more. It's it's pretty interesting. Anyways, back to to the album.
0: Are those those demos? Was Felice on those too? Yep. Oh, okay.
1: Yep. I don't know. Like the recording, to me, is really good. I like the recording. Uh, I I like the album myself. Um,
0: this I was gonna say. Like it does. It is a good sounding record. This record would not be, you know, in one of my repeat listens for sure. But I know it would be. Like I know you're a huge fan of this stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, it came out on cassette on that Noise International. We I was talking about them. I think on the. Uh, Zen Arcade. Yeah. That's that guy, Carl Orrick Walterbach, who ended up running Noise Records, which is a huge, hugely influential metal label. And uh, it also came out on CD in 1992, and that's when they started calling themselves uh, Overkill LA.
0: Right. Did this come out on vinyl?
1: Yeah. while well, originally, that's all it came out on.
0: Triumph of the Will... Was originally released in vinyl and then kind of simultaneously in Europe on cassette. Yeah, I guess right. Yeah. Okay. And then a CD later. So I've only I've got the CD.
1: Yeah.
0: And I wonder, do you have a vinyl? No, I don't. What do you What do you have? CD too? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if the vinyl has got uh, different info on it because it's very sparse. It just basically lists the band members. And says, mixed by Spot and Carducci, and that's it.
1: Yeah, I looked at some pictures on Discogs, and it's got the lyrics, I think, on the back, if I'm remembering right, like on the back of the sleeve. And it just says, all tracks, uh, M. Ward, Kurt Markham. Uh, Greg Ginn gets a credit on the track American Dream. And Ron Cordy gets a credit on No Holds Barred, which I I believe he wrote that specifically for Metal Massacre. I could be wrong. No, that's not possible because the metal massacre thing happened uh later after this was recorded.
0: So is the metal massacre track like a, you know, a, an 85 version of Overkill, like current version
1: uh 83. I think around the time like oh. they were broke up by 85. I think they yeah. recorded it around the time frame I was just talking about those 83 demos. I think they went in and recorded it with Scott Kidd on vocals, specifically for that Metal Massacre compilation. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, there is a little on the CD anyways, my version. It does say on the inside, in the, I guess, the, the jacket or the insert, it speaks about how vocal recording and mix down engineered by Spot at Total Access. Right. And then instrumental tracks engineered by G. Feet yeah. in LA.
1: Front cover drawing by Nancy Moore. She also did the Nig Heist album cover, which uh, you sent me a picture of when we were talking about the Nig Heist one time, and I decided not to post it because that album cover is repulsive.
0: Oh, I can't imagine why.
1: <laughs> uh, as far as the cover of this goes, it's also I probably I should have asked Felice if they ever got any shit for it. It's like. Like it's a, you know what it is, eh? On the cover of this,
0: I, I want to say it's like a Nazi Germany symbol, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's like a death's head, thing. They were like, uh, they were like high-ranking SS uh, SS officers that were in charge of like concentration camps, I think. And even the title of the album "Triumph of the Will" is like a famous propaganda film, from like Nazi Germany. Oh really? Yeah, Lenny Riefenstahl directed it i believe oh and she like uh had like footage of like the nuremberg and with speeches of like hitler and other nazi leaders in this film and so that's what triumph of the will is
0: yeah that's bizarre i i never would have made the connection i just honestly when i saw the skull and crossbones i never thought of it until just now it kind of there are just a zillion skull and crossbone symbols out there
1: yeah this one's pretty distinct
0: For some reason, I thought that this actually looked like something a little Motorhead-ish or something. Do they have a skull and crossbones symbol too?
1: Well, they've got their guy. He's like Walpurgis or something like that, they call him. He's like their Eddie, basically.
0: Motorhead? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I really just don't know anything about Motorhead. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, sorry, man. Sorry.
1: You want a little rundown of the tracks here? Yes, I do all right. It's gonna be quick. What do you want? Great song I wrote, and it's that's the song that where they say overkill" in the lyrics, which is cool. I always like it when bands have their band name in a song
0: like one two s n f u
1: yeah, like that uh Triumph of the will the title track to me like I love merrick's uh Merrill's vocals on this yeah, to me, his vocals sound like. Kind of like Randy Biscuit Turner. Really? Yeah.
0: I didn't. I definitely did not make that.
1: Connection. Oh yeah.
0: It, it sounded like Motorhead to me. But oh I guess I, no, you gotta
1: you gotta listen again.
0: I don't. Well, I don't know Motorhead, so what do I know?
1: Doesn't sound like Motorhead. It doesn't sound like Lemmy at all.
0: You know what? I can't he's stop got, thinking. He's got
1: soul in his voice, man. Merrill Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? I can't stop thinking about just to just to give you a sense of where my head is oriented music wise I really want to listen to that Dag Nasty record now
1: (laughs) I threw you off the whole pod just by mentioning that
0: (laughs) keep going listen listen
1: to Triumph of the Will the the title track and think think of like uh, Big Boys Uh, American Dream that's the one Greg Ginn gets a co-write on
0: that one's pretty fast, right? That would have
1: been for... Uh, it's mid-tempo. That would have been for lyrics, I suspect, that he gets that co-write.
0: Is it Slaughter that's fast?
1: Uh, Slaughter is like the hardcore song. But then it, yeah, has, yeah, these, yeah. it has these weird drum ba- breaks in the middle with kind of just yelling. That's interesting. It's a weird song. Yeah. American Dream sounds like something that could have been on like a later DOA album, like 13 Flavors of Doom or Loggerheads. Fleece does a lot of like those pinched harmonics, which are cool. That's definitely a DOA thing for sure, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, no Holds Barred is a cool song. I like this version uh, better myself than the Metal, Metal Massacre version. Victimized is another really good song. I really like the chorus. That's the one that goes, it's so real. It's a good song. Uh, side 2 starts with two kind of not so great songs, in my opinion, "Ladies in Leather" and "Bad Boy," although Felice kind of shreds her up on "Bad Boy" a little bit, which I like. But those are kind of like, you know, generic sunset strip type lyrics for me.
0: Yeah, Felice can play, man. He's got some good licks.
1: He's got chops for sure. Yeah, chains.
0: I mean, uh, what I kind of when I listen to people that play like that, I can be pretty dismissive. I got to be honest, but. Um, some of the stuff has got a like you mentioned kind of a 70s 70s rock 70s punk kind of feel to it. Yeah. I like I like that flavor for sure.
1: Oh, he's definitely more of a 70s rock guy than an 80s hair metal shredder, for sure.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Uh the track Chains r- really sounded like something one of those like Texas uh garage bands from the 90s would have done, like The Motards or like Sugar Shack. Oh yeah. Vocally, too. Addict is about, I think, like Speed Addiction. It's a good track. Lost Life is one of the better tracks. It's got more pinched harmonics. Uh, On the Loose, that one sounds like more of like a 70s punk band sound. Yep. But I like it. Uh, Don't Need a Reason is like more hardcore. And then it ends on Head On, which uh, Merrill's vocals for me, are again, are really good. That's more of a hardcore song too. It's an interesting yeah. record.
0: It is. And I mean, and maybe it won't come as a surprise to you at all, but I liked the uh, the hardcore songs the best. Yeah. Myself. I really liked Slaughter. Um, it's it's not gonna be a favorite record of mine, but I really like that song for sure.
1: Oh. I just thought it was interesting. That song's only like one minute long.
0: Yeah, well it's yeah. the one that made me crank my head when it came on. Oh yeah, yep. Can I
1: pick the ballot result though?
0: Of course. <laughs> I have no. I have no comment on the ballot result. Okay. It's a. It's a. You know, people are gonna notice some themes between the stuff that Brant and I like more. It's no surprise that Brant likes this record. This is an interesting record. You're absolutely right. It's good songs. It sounds good, but it's not up my alley. Alright. So so you definitely should pick the ballot result.
1: Alright, are you ready? Ready. Here it comes.
0: Ballot result.
1: My top three, Ryan, are victimized, no holds barred, but the ballot result this week is going to be American Dream. It's got a great riff.
0: American Dream. Yeah. Cool.
1: Yeah. Ryan, what's next week?
0: So next week is, I guess, another brand record, more so than myself, although I am a fan. It's SST-39, The Meat Puppets Up on the Sun.
1: That's a big one for me, man. I know. Yeah. Looking forward to that one. Thanks for listening, everybody.